back to the function room. This week, we're minding our P's in Q's. Uh, what if everyone on Earth were waiting to go for a toilet? That would be a really long queue. Imagine if I was at the last queue. You were at the last in the queue? We really needed to go to toilet. Mmm. Wow. That would be upsetting, wouldn't it? That's Lily. Just like anyone, Lily finds queues frustrating. Toilets, as mentioned, although accompanying a small child gets you special dispensation to move up a toilet queue in a way uh, that clutching your sides and talking about a bad pint won't. Lily often feels like she has no control over the queue and that I can somehow do something about it. I generally can't, but it's nice when someone has faith in you. This has been a summer of queues. A flurry of COVID tests and two vaccination jabs have meant a brush with big queue. But the thing is, the queues were perfect. I don't mean there was no queue. I just mean that at no point did I feel frustration about the progress of the queue or doubt about where I was to go. They were well-run queues, which got me thinking. What makes a good queue or a bad queue? And is there any maths behind it? Well, there's a hatch free, so step forward. Ken Duffy, I'm Professor of Applied Probability at Maynooth University, where I'm the director of the Hamilton Institute, which is the university's applied maths research centre. By the way, this Hamilton in the Hamilton Institute is neither a musical elephant from special extra programmes on RTE in the 80s or a rapping founding father of the United States. This was William Rowan Hamilton, who was an Irish mathematician who discovered, among other things, four-dimensional algebra. I don't know how that works, but I feel like using the sentence four-dimensional algebra now and again just to set myself apart from people and be alone, maybe. So, anyway, it's that Hamilton, William Rowan Hamilton. And here's what Ken Duffy does for a living. Uh, At the moment, um, my job involves a number of things. One is the, the Hamilton Institute itself is where over 40 numerate faculty at Maynooth come together to work in an interdisciplinary way. So I have the pleasure of directing that for the last five years or so. I also conduct research in applied probability used in both engineering, the life sciences, computer networks. Um, and I co-direct a very large doctoral program in the foundations of data science with my friends, James Gleason, who's a professor in the University of Limerick, and Claire Gormley, who's a professor of statistics in UCD. Very useful names to have, perhaps, in future, <laughs> future episodes of The Function Room, definitely. But also, Ken knows a thing or two about a thing called queuing theory. Queuing theory has a history that dates back a little over 100 years. It first came into consideration when people were wondering, how can you dimension telephone exchanges? You know, people want to make calls and they arrive and... Uh, prior to mobile telephony, the way that worked was you had to complete a circuit between whoever was making the call and who was receiving it. And the question was sort of how do you provision how big those exchanges are? And in particular, what you're worried about is fluctuations where too many people arrive, the queue gets too long for people who want to use the service, and then they have to, that they're denied service. Uh, um, just just to create the picture of those telephone exchanges. So we're talking about plugging wires, plugging plugs, which look like headphone jacks into any number of holes in a in an upright frame. That's absolutely correct. That's how it started. But actually, you know, all the way through 
landline technology up until the 1990s, um, those people who were pulling and pushing plugs were eventually replaced with machines that did it, but it was effectively the same technology. You were still completing a circuit between um, whoever was making the phone call and who was receiving it. Um, only later, you know, as you said, mobile telephony and, and actually the way we're speaking now over the internet is is a very different paradigm. There isn't an end-to-end circuit created between you and me. Instead, little snippets of what I'm saying are being packaged up into little parcels and they're being fired into the internet in the same way that you would fire a, par- a parcel into the postal system. They wander through the internet, joining queues, sitting sitting in queues, getting processed, passed on to their next destination, and eventually reach you. Uh, and similarly, uh, your conversation is coming back to me, packetized and sent back. Um, in And it's queuing in there in the internet with all the other data that's going through, um, people watching YouTube videos and you know, we're all we're all queuing together to get rooted through this network. And going back to uh, the telephone exchanges, uh, the old way of doing things. So you have engineers and mathematicians, and they're connecting a couple of cities, maybe, and they need to figure out how many plugs do they need in order so that when I pick up the old receiver in a Laurel and Hardy film, I do, you know I I ring the exchange. How many of those plugs? That's it's the sizing, is it, of the connections of the, of that's, how many of those plugs and how many people I need to employ. That's so they start figuring out what's the maths to work that out, is it? Absolutely. And so I don't know, Callum, if you're old enough to remember ringing people on a landline on uh, New Year's Eve. So yeah. if you if you picked up an old school phone, right, even in the 1990s, and you went to ring someone. You could get an engaged tone for one of two reasons. It could be that the person you're trying to call was already on a call, or it could actually be that there was no space in the system to facilitate your call. Right, as, as when, recently as the 1990s, wow. Yeah, whenever whenever last you had a, a proper landline. Yeah. Um, and so what happened was in the, uh, you know, this was being done by inevitably polymaths, right? So that the the first name associated with the subject is a Danish guy called Erlang. Um, and in fact, the unit of teletraffic was named after him later. So a unit of how much uh, how much work you're bringing in a telephone network is called an Erlang. But um, he was, you know, he was a mathematician and an engineer, uh, literally, because apparently he used to take measurements of the phone network by going down through manhole covers uh, and having to do that element too. Um, but what he was uh, interested in... Was he measuring in, how thick the wires were or how many wires there were going through, is it? Uh, they were tapping them in order to figure out how many calls were trying to take place, I think. All right, um, okay. And um, at different locations in their network. Uh, he was in uh, Denmark. Um, but, the yeah, the, you know, the... The question is, what is it that you're trying to achieve? You're trying to decide how you should dimension these these objects in two ways. One is so that the likelihood that someone comes along and wants to make a call and cannot do so because the resource is overloaded is sufficiently small that people are not you know, upset with you as a telephone company and don't pay their bill. Um, and a natural question when you do that work is, um, you know, maybe you can buffer some of the calls, you know, so maybe someone can say, can you hold the line until I connect you? Yeah. Um, and really what you want to know is how do fluctuations in those queues 
behave as a function of how much traffic is arriving, so how many calls are trying to arrive, as a function of how long those calls typically last when they're made, right? Because if you make a call for a long time, you're using the resource for a long time. And what they really wanted to know is how do you dimension all those things so that the likelihood that the queue becomes long uh, is small, is sufficiently small. You know, and so that's how queuing theory starts. And then it develops um, into a very large theory. It starts by considering a single element, right? So the natural thing uh, when you consider these things is building a mathematical model of what's called a single server queue, which is a single individual serving jobs that are arriving. And people come with a random amount of work, so they take a random amount of time to to, to be served. Um, the time between which they arrive is random. And what you're interested in is understanding how does the randomness and how much work people bring to the queue and uh, the times between when they arrive, how does that reflect itself in the fluctuations and how long the queue becomes? Because, of course, what you don't want is long queues. Um, the more sophisticated models then start asking questions like, if I can only store a certain number of people in my queue, what's the likelihood that someone comes along and finds the queue is full and so is turned away? You know, if you had gone to the Aviva Stadium and there was no room in the building and they'd sent you home, you know, what is the chance that that would happen? And then, of course, the theory ultimately ends up having to become much more sophisticated because no single queuing element lives in isolation. And as in your experience in the Aviva, usually queuing uh, queuing networks are really networks. You know, you you go into one queue you join it, waiting to get to the head of the line, waiting to get served. And then from there, you're routed on to your next destination to join another queue to have something else happen to you. And obviously, uh, Erlang and others around this time and others since, they're modeling people and times and complexity of what somebody wants from their queuing experience, be they human or some you know, electrical components that's queuing. And it all sounds like, how could you possibly model that? People are chaotic. They all are special snowflakes who couldn't possibly be modeled. So I'm guessing, given your job title, uh, you know, in terms of applied probability, you start bringing some probability in and what turns out, what looks to be chaotic actually has a rough shape. Is that kind of where they, what they, what they end up at? That's right. So it turns out that um, you can, all of applied mathematics is about models. And there's a very famous quote attributable to, actually to a statistician rather than to a mathematician, which says that all models are wrong, but some are useful. (laughs) Um, And so what happens is um, you're not trying to perfectly model what's going on. You're trying to build a model that captures a sufficient amount of the essence and make sufficiently useful predictions that it's of value. In, in this case, um, the reason it's a queuing theory is like a sub-branch of, of probability theory or applied probability. And the reason for it is, as you said, you know, you're not going to, I'm not going to measure uh, or try and model the behavior of uh, Colin O'Regan, right? And, and how you make phone calls or whatever. But if I take a population of people, probably the best way to describe them is somewhat stochastically. Uh, That friendly little bell means I'm just nipping in and interrupting to explain something that I didn't really understand at the time or thought 
that a bit of background might help. So stochastic means probabilistic. Like we don't know what an individual will do, but we have a rough idea what a population might do. So stochastic is sort of good guessing. Probably the best way to describe them is somewhat stochastically. I can describe, you know, uh, probabilities associated with a collection of people rather than describing individuals. Um, there's also a very profound mathematical result whose uh, first instantiation dates back to the 1800s, um, where if I was to look, column at when do you make phone calls, right? So, so let's say I was to instrument your phone. So over the course of a couple of weeks, I look to see uh, what are the times at which you make phone calls you would probably expect to see patterns in there, I'd guess, right? You know, that yeah. maybe you make phone calls early in the morning, you don't make them in the middle of the night and so on, okay? So as you say, there's a kind of sophisticated, complex pattern in there. Now imagine you also make a recording of when I make phone calls and when my wife make phone calls and my friends make phone calls, okay? Each of us on our own, those patterns will look very distinctive to us. But actually, if I'm the queuing exchange, if I'm the thing that's trying to provide us a service, what I would care about is not who is making the call, but when is it arriving? And so you can imagine what really matters to the phone exchange is not when does Colm or Regan make calls, but when does Colm or Ken or my wife, Muriel, or whoever else make a call. And when you superimpose these individual traces that have a lot of structure, you end up getting a trace that has a very simple statistical structure. So even though if you tag the individual Colum O'Regan calls, they look like they have a specific pattern, when you interlace when all of us make calls, it turns out to have a very simple pattern. Um, it looks like the time between which phone calls are made look pretty much approximately exponentially distributed. So if a call arrives, I know that I will have to wait an exponentially distributed period of time before another one appears. Exponential distribution in probability means that the time between events, such as the phone calls that we're talking about there, is governed by, like if it was a curve, it would sort of slope down in a kind of a ski slope at the Olympics looking thing, except instead of the jump at the end, it would just glide gradually to the ground. Roughly speaking, it's very likely the call will be dealt with soon and fairly unlikely it will never be dealt with at all. Although you may differ in your view depending on which phone provider you're stuck with. But anyway, these are old phones. Okay, back to Ken. Look pretty much approximately exponentially distributed. So if a call arrives, I know that I will have to wait an exponentially distributed period of time before another one appears. Um, and that's what goes into... Erlang's base model. It's like calls are arriving to a server with an exponential distribution, um, and that's a characterized merely by one number, which is the average. Welcome back to the function room after a break in July. This week, we're minding our P's in Q's. Rate at which calls arrive. So if you tell me the average rate at which calls arrive to the, to the queuing system, and you tell me the average time that they spend then I can make a pretty good stab at telling you what the fluctuations in the queue are going to look like. Erlang came up with a formula for how you should dimension a phone exchange that 
is was still used all the way through at least until the 1990s you know so when people were sticking in phone exchanges they would have an estimate of how long phone calls take and how much how what the rate at which they thought phone calls were likely to arrive at the exchange and they would dimension them so that the likelihood you got an engaged tone was very small um the place where that didn't work as I mentioned, like is that at New Year's Eve, right? When everybody goes and makes a phone call simultaneously, that's not part of our statistical model, right? That's yeah. not that's not like a random event. There's a trigger that's triggered all of us, um, and so even back in the day, Telecom Aaron, if RTE, who, who you often do work for, if RTE were to do a phone in, for example, you know, at the end of I don't know Eurovision or something, then they had to provide a different form of provisioning to allow those phone calls because uh, you know you would trigger and say dial in now or whatever or vote for vote for your favorite person and that would trigger a huge number of calls simultaneously so to do that they didn't use our airlines formula so airlines formula was useful for um normal unpredictable <laughs> environments from talking to you earlier Erlang was interested in other, in unusual areas. You were saying that he had an interest in surnames going extinct. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, one of the features of mathematics as a general rule is um, you pick up techniques in one area and a way of understanding, you know, a structure, be it a, a geometry or probabilistic system, and it ends up having merit somewhere else. One of the things that um, Erlang was interested in was uh, the probability that a surname goes extinct. Wow. It turns out to have a very deep relationship in understanding cues, which is perhaps a bit too hard to explain in a short podcast. But his personal interest in it was because his mother was the last of a famous dynasty. And when she died, her surname went extinct. And so he asked the question, if I have a population of people um, and during their life they give rise to a certain number of offspring, but there's a possibility that they give rise to no offspring, you know, what is the likelihood that a name becomes extinct? And it's very interesting. He, he got the right answer, um, but the question had been asked previously by uh, Francis Galton, who was a, a famous eugenicist, one of these people in the 1800s who believed smart people should have children with smart people. Um, okay. And he was... So, so they were worried about sur if the surname was disappearing, they thought the smart people were disappearing as well. In particular, he named uh, peerage in the British system he thought were very smart. And he noticed that names in the British peerage were going extinct. And so... He was the first to ask in the 1870s, um, and, and he asked and answered the question, um, was it a certainty that names would go extinct, or was this a feature of the fact that the intelligent people in his society were having too few children? perhaps because people are too busy studying and having children late, <laughs> if you're from a cl clever family. He went to his friend, the Reverend Watson, who had been an excellent mathematician as an undergraduate in Cambridge. And he went to him and he told him, look, you just solve this for me. And so they wrote the, a paper at the end, the, in, and it's published in the Journal of the Anthropological Society of Great Britain and Ireland in 1875, because of course, 
Great Britain and Ireland are all part of the UK at that stage. Um, and they deduce that there's nothing special about names in the peerage going extinct. So it, it, it ran contrary to his uh, supposition that there was something special going on. So at least to his scientific merit, he, he didn't uh, gerrymander things to get the answer that he wanted. Yeah, but, but his, his question was kind of an asshole question. <laughs> and I entire, suppose entire. It, uh, it's something that probably happens in uh, ma- like no more than medicine or other branches of science. Some of the, the things we know now uh, were asked for nefarious reasons long ago uh, and delving into them un- probably uncovers some uncomfortable things about the way people thought of each other, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, Galton's investigations were well regarded at the time, but they were based on a hypothesis that thankfully turns out to be provably false. The, the, the toy mathematical model, coming back to Box, it's merely a surname is a thing. And yeah. during a surname's life, it can give birth to uh, copies of itself or not, um, which is actually why it turns out to have relevance in queuing uh, and very much underlies mathematical models about uh, cellular systems, things like how cancer grows. You can think of a surname as being a cancer cell and you're interested in whether is the surname going to exponentially grow as it has offspring or is it going to die out? And actually, the basis of all of that sort of math and that sort of probabilistic model, the later variants of it, uh, underlie a lot of the calculations that are being used in the epidemiological models and uh, for COVID. Really? Uh, so it's, yeah, it's yeah. all all connected, everything, anything in the area of reproduction or things begetting That's other right. things. That's right. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of the... One of the very significant developments in, was in the 1940s by two people in the US, Bellman and Harris. But their motivation for things that beget things in the 1940s was they were trying to understand nuclear bombs. Okay. Um, so chain reactions. It's chain reactions, exactly. Do you get a chain reaction or does the thing die out? And you can imagine why that would have a relationship to epidemiology, right? You know, if if one person gets the virus and they don't meet very many people and what's the chance that the virus will die out before it's propagated wildly? And on the other hand, as as well, you will have seen from watching the dynamics in the, of the numbers in the news, once the thing takes hold, it becomes very unlikely that it dies out quickly. And the mathematics underlying all that stuff all, all dates back to this stuff from the 1870s about fretting about whether uh, lords and ladies in the UK, uh, whether they're, they're not having enough children. So we shouldn't be so harsh on the ingrained British caste system. They have uh, inadvertently given birth to nuclear chain reactions uh, on the one hand, but also studying killer viruses on the other hand. So any activity that, that you engage in as a, as a mathematician, no matter how assholy your motivations, could go somewhere. Absolutely. That's the thing, you know, you, you, you pilfer techniques from, from everywhere. It's particularly true of mathematical models, because um, often, often when you rewrite mathematics, you find that the little part of your model can be rephrased in a way that makes it look like something else. Um, so those objects that we were talking about, where the names go extinct, that they're, they're called branching processes. And actually, they arise in the study of queuing theory, too. It seems like theories keep, mathematics keeps creating more maths or more applications. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, uh, queuing theory 
helps models everything from behaviors in supermarkets to behaviors in banks and so on. And um, even using the sort of mathematics that, that Erlang was doing, um, you, you know, banks changed how the queuing system worked in, in, in banks in light of discoveries in queuing theory, basically that having a lot of tellers and a single queue was a much fairer mechanism than having a single queue per teller and the customer having to come in and pick which queue to join um, because there was a reasonable likelihood the customer would end up being disgruntled. You know, you'd, you'd join what you thought was a short queue and you'd be waiting there for ages and you'd see other people arrive after you and leave before you and you'd become displeased with the bank. So there was quite a big shift in um, 70s, 80s to having single queuing systems at a bank. I notice actually my local post office does that um now for example and that's a that's a deduction that you can make about how fair is a queuing system pretty trivial if you have a single element like that a bit more complicated if you have a network you have to go through um just to just to, that's a i mean that's a queuing two queuing uh systems that we'd be very familiar with and you mentioned a couple of uh words there that I wonder, do they get plugged into the maths? Fairness and disgruntlement, or maybe disgruntlement is the is the inverse of fairness. But when I'm in a queue where uh, it's a single queue and multiple tellers, I direct my disgruntlement at slow people, <laughs> not at... <laughs> Uh, not at the institution, unless it's very obvious there aren't enough windows open. But if I feel like there's enough windows open and I see somebody clearly taking ages, uh, an airline check-in desk, and I see them go up and I'm like, oh, come on, you know you should have your passport ready. Like, But I don't direct it at the airline. Is fairness and disgruntlement, do they go into sums? They do. Um, but I'm going to give you a, a second queuing system for you to consider, right? Okay. So if you're in if you're in a single um, long queue and the people at the front, there's, there's let's say, two, two, two airline check-in people and there are now two people taking far too long checking in their bags. You're, you're kind of disgruntled at being in the queue, okay? But if, if there were two queues, right, and you had to pick one to begin with, and you joined one, you thought, this is nice and short, and what happened was you ended up in the queue with the person who was going to be slow at the front, and the other queue beside you is moving super fast, the one you didn't pick, then you would be feeling disgruntled at the design of the system, would you not? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, okay, so they moved, most places moved to a single queue in order to ha- let you avoid that unfairness. So that's, yeah. a, that's a fairness issue, you know. So um, should, should people be processed in the order in which they arrive? Um, and there's a lot of work on what's called priority queues, you know. So like if I do business class check-in or I have frequent flyer miles, you'll often see me fly through uh, while you're still stuck in your queue or... And that also applies to the private hospital system, right? Yeah. Um, but and, and uh, level of dis- disgruntlement depends on whether you wave at me <laughs> while flying <laughs> or not. Exactly. Your, your uh, how demure you are about your about your privilege. Uh, that's right. Um, so normally, fairness is uh, measures of fairness are measures of how. How, how resources are allocated in a queuing system, they're often related to how disordered is the service. So um, do people who arrive after others to the system, 
do they get more resource? Do they get processed quick, more quickly? And and there there are metrics that you would, you would use to measure uh, that unfairness. Disgruntlement is usually measured in a slightly different way. Normally, it's um, to do with um, the frequency with which you arrive to the system and find that it's very full, um, or that you're waiting a long time. You know, because as you said, if you're waiting a long time in the queue. It's not really fairness is about your comparison with other customers, whereas disgruntlement is more about just your personal experience. Do some queues move faster than others then? Do you see them move quickly and then some are slow queues? Yeah. Why do you think that happens? Because when when lots of people are going to queues, it kind of goes really slowly. Mm-hmm. Because everyone's waiting. And when do queues move quickly? when there's not much people in queues. That's right. It does then, seem that way, doesn't it? When you're yeah. not in, waiting in a long queue, yeah. that the queue seems to move faster. Yeah. In a supermarket, uh, what has self-service queues, what have they done to queuing theory or vice versa? What, what are the principles behind those? Because obviously there's staff employed. The staff are now mobile. So are they, do they adapt to the queue as they see it faster than, you know, if you were designing a queue, you'd be putting down poles and ropes and you're not going to change it very often. But in a self-service queue, you've got floating staff to help people. Uh, is, is, is that an adaptive queue? That's a good question. I think there's sort of two different things at play. One is... Normally, those self-service queues, at least in their original realization, are for people with smaller amounts of materials, right? So they're baskets, you know. So if you have a basket, you go there, and if you have a, if you have a trolley, <clears throat> you go to the 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 conveyor belt. Um, and the rationale there is really to distinguish two types of jobs, right? Small jobs and big jobs. You said yourself, um, you know, you're queuing for your airline, and someone in front of you is taking a long time, and that's annoying. Um, before you had those little self-service elements, if you had a small basket with a small number of things, you might find yourself in the queue behind people who have very large trolleys. So the first thing that they're trying to do with that stuff is usually actually classify jobs as being small or not. And there they're deciding a fairness question because you with the small job with your basket, you have a choice about which queue to join. You know, you could just go to an empty conveyor belt if that's available or you can join a queue that the people with the big baskets the big trolleys cannot um then the design of well you don't have a, a person at each of those uh baskets you know self-service ones i think that's on the basis that it would be very costly to employ lots of people to you know one per one per basket thing. Um, one of the things to bear in mind is the efficiency of a queuing system is how much time does the server spend working, you know? And to maximize your value for money, if you're the person who owns the system, you want your servers working full time, right? But if they're working full time, your queues are probably getting very long. And so in fact, you know, one of the earliest uh, important deductions in queuing theory was that if a queue system is to be stable, that is, if queues are not to grow 
egregiously, you need to be have more service capability than you do have customers arriving on average. And as a result of that, it means that some of your servers will spend periods of time when they're not working. Um, and so I think that the basket service system, it would be very costly because there will be a lot of downtime because the basket jobs are quite small. Um, and what they found is it's more like they've semi-automated it. It's probably a little less efficient because we're probably not as good at scanning things as someone who's professionally doing it day in, day out. Uh, so the service rate of those individual elements is probably not as good as if it was um, serviced by a professional. But on the other hand, it's much cheaper to have one individual helping the people when they get stuck. Uh, most of us just chugging through at a slightly slower rate. Um, it does raise a very interesting question for you as a customer, which is which queue do you join? Right? So, um, you know, do you join the basket queue uh, or do you join uh, one of the ones where there are trolleys? And that can be a hard thing to judge, right? Because the trolley queue might look short because there may only be like two customers ahead of you. And the basket queue might look long. There might It might look like there's 10 or 12. But on the other hand, the basket queue typically has many servers, right? You know, you, you get to the head of the line and you join the next, you know, you go to the machine that's free, right? And that has a huge advantage. The huge advantage of that is that you cannot get stuck behind one slow individual because that one slow individual takes up one of those machines, but not all of them. Yeah. Um, and in queuing theory, that's known to be very, very important. So if you want to minimize average amount of time that people spend waiting, then pooling those servers and having a single queue to them, which is what you do in the basket, almost certainly guarantees that you're never going to be waiting an egregious amount of time. Right? The, so their, even, their delay is spread among all the people in the queue. Is that right? Like they're divided. The, the amount of slowness is divided, is experienced by all the people in the queue together. Is that right? And then it's kind of divided. It's averaged uh, out. No, it's because they can't block you. Okay. You know, so, so what happens is if, um, if you've joined a single queue and there's only a single server, if the person on front of you is slow, there's nothing you can do about it. You and everybody behind you is just going to have to wait. Whereas if you imagine, for example, there are two servers and the person on front of you becomes slow, they only occupy one of the servers, but you can kind of skip, <laughs> you can kind of skip them by going to the other one. Yeah. You know, and um, that ability it, it means, so if you had two servers on front of you, you'd need to be unlucky. You'd need to have two very slow people on front of you, right? Yeah. Uh, and if you have 10, you'd need 10 slow people on front of you. You know, what are the chances of that? So what happens is um, the likelihood you have to wait a long time turns out to like effectively decay exponentially in how many servers you could possibly join. So the more servers you put on, the likelihood I'm waiting a long time so you still on average might have to wait around the same amount of time. But the thing that is kind of guaranteeing you is that the likelihood you have to wait a really long time is very small. Okay. So so it's it's really that trade-off and, and that reduces your frustration. Um coming back to your previous point, you know, it's um 
it's not quite fair because how do you define fairness between people who have baskets and trolleys? That's a that's a trade off you have to decide. But um, it, it makes the system seem more efficient to you because when was the last time you joined a basket queue and ended up having to wait a very long period of time? Okay. And then, of course, throw a curveball in by uh, bringing your trolley into the basket queue, but I presume no, <laughs> no model can, can take care of that. So the other way I experience queuing and waiting is waiting for an internet uh, page to load. What queuing is going on there? So the original phone network was based on the design that I have to connect a circuit between the caller and the receiver. The internet is based more along the the paradigm of the postal service. So when you want a web page, you make a request for the web page, you put in the destination of the web page and you put in your address. Um, and then you fire a packet into the internet that that makes that request. And the internet has to figure out how it should transport that packet through the internet to the web page to make the request. And then that web page has to send the data back to you. And what happens is at no time do either you or the web page know what route your packets are taking through the internet, you know, and, and actually different packets might take different routes. You know, it's not an end to end system. It's a bit like um, you've asked 10 cars to drive to your house um, they don't necessarily all have to take the same route. You don't necessarily have to care um, which way they went. All you care about is whether they get to you. Um, and all of those things are traveling through the internet and are joining queues and waiting to be processed, the equivalent of joining at traffic lights and so on, uh, and are all doing so adaptively. Um, moreover, loads of other people are also downloading web pages and doing other things at the same time. And so there what happens is basically when you're downloading a web page, you're initially very modest in the workload that you're putting into the system. You ask for a small amount of data. And if that data gets to you efficiently, so if like the first part of the web page comes to you pretty quickly, then what happens is you say, okay, I'd like twice as much, please. And and if that comes to you pretty quickly, then clearly there's capacity in the queuing network to deliver that to you. And you keep asking for double and double and double until eventually you ask for too much. And some of the stuff that you ask for has joined queues that are overly full and the packets are dropped and things go missing. Uh, and then at that stage, you ask for a more modest amount of data again. Um, but every one of those packets that's taking an image or content or text from a web page and being sent to you it's all being put in a packet that's being put into a queuing network that's pottering through um but it's quite a bit more complicated than airlines original vision particularly because how much demand you're putting onto the queuing system is a function of how well you perceive it to be behaving if you think it has capacity you ask okay. for more and more until you break it and, you know, for example, you know, if your YouTube uh, video suddenly stalls, what's happened is somewhere in the network, the packets that you were waiting for have gone to join the back of a queue and found that it's full and they've just been dropped. They've been the equivalent of turned away. Um, if you wait for a little bit, uh, you know, you don't get data. Your computer asks and says, hey, I didn't get that data. Can you send it again? Um, if it doesn't get an answer to that question, it waits 
a longer period and asks again, and then it waits a longer period and asks again. And you as a user, if you get fed up with that, you intuitively know that if you hit refresh, actually what you're doing is you're instantaneously making the demand. You're, you're, you're not waiting until the next appropriate time to ask for the web page again or the YouTube video. You're just saying, hey, try and give it to me now. And you're hoping to try and catch the network when it has a bit of capacity. You're hoping to be lucky. You're hoping to be lucky, yeah. So it's it's a very different system and there's a lot of different math goes into it. It's also very inherently a large network, you know, that the the packets that are going between you and me are probably going through, I don't know, 15, 16 different devices. Um, and there's cross traffic. It's much more like the network of roads in a country or whatever. Uh, and their fairness becomes harder to explain. You know, if if you and I are talking between Galway and Dublin, um, you know, then we're effectively sending cars back and forth between Galway and Dublin, then we're using a lot of resources, right, for our conversation. Whereas if you're talking to someone down the road from you, you're not using very much road. So how do we decide what a fair balance of who gets resources is in that case? So fairness in a network is much more complicated when the demands of users is distinct. And so the network, you know, the internet is much more complicated, including uh, doing priority queues, allowing some data to skip ahead, uh, the equivalent of your business class flights. You know, people will sell you services to, to, to allow you to get more resources than other people and so on. Um, but it's also very, very hard then to dimension. You know, it's very hard for for the people who are providing this service to decide how fast should their routers be, how much storage should they have, how big should they let their queues become. It's um, it's a lot more challenging. And do you know how much more capacity the internet queue has? Like, it feels like we're, oh, first of all, people like me with, you know, storing tons, trying to have chats over the internet. I mean, the exponential increase in podcasts, has that brought the internet down yet? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> if, if in the analogy with any other type of queue, what's its capacity before it starts just turning lots of people away? Uh, it's quite amazing, actually. So what's happened is whenever there is a need and there's money involved, then innovation occurs, you know. So um, the technologies underlying uh, the internet have been improving dramatically consistently. But actually, a lot of it is just massive over-provisioning. So when people, you know, when people lay transatlantic fiber, you can imagine that's a very, very expensive thing to do. You take a boat and you put transatlantic fiber through. It's not something that you're going to do very frequently. So when they do that, it's, you know, I'm going to build a road between Dublin and Galway. I don't build a one-track road because I think that's what I need now. What I do is I build a super highway in anticipation that ultimately we will need it. So that's what a lot of the internet infrastructure is like. It's it's a lot of it's very over provisioned. The place where you see that it's not or is you know uh, cell phone coverage in rural areas or whatever because they didn't build a super highway down there. Where would queuing theory be headed next? Do you think? Like one queue that everybody talks about in most countries is the queue for healthcare, and there's an impression that oh, there's all sorts of efficiencies you could if if you just through maths at it can queuing theory help reduce queues at the door of hospitals or within hospitals or within a system or is that just a classic not everything is an engineering solution 
Uh, no, it certainly can. And there is an awful lot of active research in, in doing so. Um, one of the reasons why queuing theory was very applicable to things like uh, the internet is because it's inherently instrumented. I can very readily measure and get observations for how well my network is behaving in a, in a queuing system that is a hospital. You know, you go to admissions from admissions. Once you get served, you get rooted to another uh, department and then you get seen and you get rooted somewhere else. The difficulty with a lot of that had been gathering sufficient data to understand how a complicated routing device, a complicated queuing system like a hospital works. But it's it's evidently a sensible thing to do. And there is an awful lot of active research, including in Ireland, um, in trying to understand how to make those things more efficient. Um, it's certainly hugely more complicated than phone calls because a phone call is a phone call is a phone call. Uh, or even a data packet is a data packet, whereas you know, the routing that patients take through a network in a hospital, they're all very distinct and they're probably all highly variable in a way that is hard to build a simple abstraction of. But it's a, it's an obvious line of work and it is a very popular one. Indeed, uh, not only in considering queuing networks in hospitals, um, and the instrumentation there has gotten an awful lot better with things like RFID tags so that you can automatically tell, automatically record when a patient goes to a place or shows up at a clinic or whatever. And of course, the computer systems are getting much, much better. You know, we all have this unique medical identifier now and uh, makes it much easier to see the patterns in individuals but in general queuing theory is also taught to, to like mba students people who are doing operations research who want to understand how factories can be more efficient how business organizations could be more efficient you know um how do you route uh, your jobs through your company um so these are all very active uses of queuing theory um that are very much made possible by the ease of instrumentation, the ease of getting measurements and better understanding of the operational element of each unit. Is there any merit in a bad queue? <laughs> like, like does, does uh, do, you know, people meeting in a queue, uh, networking within a queue, does, obviously, the original equations are about optimizing a queue, but do people do maths about the, the organic nice things that happen out of, queuing systems that like the solidarity that comes out of a crap queue not to the best of my knowledge uh, instead what people do is instead consider the nasty thing of how do i readily block a queue okay um, so den denial of service attacks that kind of thing right so uh what you've heard about the internet you know and some um the hackers yeah hackers you know how do how do i inhibit your ability to get access to the internet one way of doing it is by filling it full of jobs that need to be processed so that's a denial of service attack i i stop you having access by filling it with junk myself there's also other funny instances your data when it gets through through the internet it gets handed across different companies and sometimes they intentionally set up the borders between those two things so that the queues are badly behaved to discourage you from routing your traffic through their network so they don't have to do the job for you. It's like um, if you wanted to send a parcel to the US 
Um, it's like the UK making it so that it would be very slow if you sent it through the UK. So you should send it somewhere else. Okay. Uh, so lots of nefarious stuff, but oh. uh, not so much nice things. Not, not, not nice things. The world, the world's a horrible place. And just before I let you go, Ken, what are you working on now that you're excited about? Uh, and does it have anything to do with cues? Only tangentially. So a, a key difference between traditional phone calls and all these other sorts of things is um, computerized data is all digital, you know, like the, the, the conversation we're having at the moment, it takes my voice, converts it into a digital signal and then sends it over the internet. And as it sends it over the internet, um, a couple of things can happen to it. One is that the data can be corrupted. So some of the ones and zeros can be flipped, you know. Um, okay, just in case you didn't know what the ones and zeros Ken is referring to means here, it means binary code the way information is coded and transmitted digitally. Computer processors need a simple language to read instructions. And binary is a string of ones and zeros arranged in such a way to get across text or images or video or anything at all or computer processing instructions. instructions. And it's just, it's encoding, it's breaking down. What I'm saying now to you is being converted into ones and zeros. Binary is really old. Uh, Gottfried Leibniz sort of was known for inventing it around the 17th century, but he would have heard about it from the Chinese I Ching, which is millennia old, and also elsewhere in history, it's used all over the world. And once you start looking at binary, you end up absolutely neck deep in philosophy and religion. And well, that's a topic for another day. So look it up. Um, but I've added it to the to-do list. A couple of things can happen to it. One is that the data can be corrupted. So some of the ones and zeros can be flipped, you know, um, just because of inaccurate copying, that kind of thing. Um, and actually, sometimes they can get dropped, you know, because a, a bit of my speech to you joins the back of a queue and the queue is too long and it gets dropped. Um, and there are techniques for trying to rectify those errors and kind of add efficiencies by managing what happens if packets get dropped. And that's a whole other exciting and interesting part of applied probability called information theory. And with colleagues in MIT, uh, a couple of years ago, we invented a whole new algorithm, set of algorithms for uh, tackling that sort of question. Um, and we've been very busy, not only proving theorems, but implementing the solutions in chips so we have a we have a first chip out uh, this year which is a an in silicon realization of our algorithms which is very exciting so somebody um, at the micro micro level has soldered your mathematics onto a piece of silicon like embedded in that is your if if error code comes back what to do job that's right that's right yeah and um yeah, taped out in silicon in in Taiwan uh, earlier this year, and the chip came back, and with great relief, it works well. Um, <laughs> so we're representing that later that year, this year. That's very exciting, you know, to go from mathematics where I sit down and prove a theorem um, to designing a circuit that actually implements it, and then going and making it. It must be because all of us in our work like to touch and hold the thing we made, be it like when I publish a book when the first proofs arrive in the post like 
uh, you are looking at because you know you know your maths goes somewhere, but now it's your it's the Ken chip. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. Although the chip is very small, unlike your book. <laughs> Did it not wrap it up in a big box like uh, when you get your SIM card? Like, is it wrapped in wrapped in plastic? No, not far off. Um, and uh, and they do take uh, very high quality photos of it with a very small camera. Oh, great! So, um, so you do get a pretty photo of it. But that's uh, as someone who's interested in and in seeing their ideas translated, it's always fabulous to see the the real thing come about. Uh, and the next step after that is to make the same thing only smaller. Is it? That's how chip, chip works. <laughs> uh, we, the next thing is to make it uh, better. Yeah. Um, where yeah. will that? Where will that chip go? What device will it go into? Does it go into inf- internet infrastructure devices, or does it go into uh, somebody's phone, or what happens to it? Uh, if we're if we're successful, it will end up possibly going into phones and base stations and computer chips and all over the place actually it's a it's a fairly universal solution to a challenging problem so you will um, be uh, mildly unbearable down the pub the minute anyone picks up a phone uh, and answers a call uh, you'll just be saying i i helped that happen you'll be pointing uh, at them. Uh, if I was super lucky, I'd be saying my university earned uh, one cent for you making that film. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, you know, all of these things are, are, are un- uh, it's unlikely research will translate, but we're hopeful with this one and we're pushing very hard. Um, and it's a, it's a very enjoyable collaboration between people in Maynooth University and, and folks at MIT. And of course, uh, the possibility that, that the work you're doing ends up in space and like Neptune or something in 150 years time because you just don't know where the maths goes. I, I, does that cross your mind when you're working on something, the, the unknown unknowns about where it might go? Um, it certainly does. Um, although I know it won't end up in Neptune. That's it, that, for, for interesting reasons that we would need another podcast on. The sort of error correcting technology that they use for deep space communications is, is quite distinct um, and has a very pretty history of its own. It's actually a lovely topic. Maybe we talk about okay. it some other time. Coming up, in, coming up in part two. This is what I like and never know where it ends up. Uh, Ken Duffy, thanks so much for your time. And particularly because there's a time difference, I should say to the listeners, Ken is up really early for this conversation, far earlier than me, because you're over in the States. So I appreciate that. And best of luck with this chip and wherever that chip goes and whatever chips you're having after that. Thank you very much, Cal. It's a pleasure. Okay, that's it from the Function Room for this time. Please like and subscribe and leave a review to help get the podcast up the charts where it deserves to be, jousting with Joe Rogan and all the rest Uh, all negative comments you can send to me directly Uh, since you're in at the ground level you really get an opportunity to shape this thing and other such uh, jargon I'm doing a live recording of the function room at the Cat Laughs Summer Series which is down in Kilkenny in Ireland and that's next Tuesday August 31st 2021 in case you're catching up on these podcasts from the distant future Uh, If you want to see me chat with neuroscientist Kevin Mitchell about the mathematics of free will, predestination, and do any of us have any control over anything that happens. So that's catlaughs.com. And have a look around for the summer series. There's limited tickets uh, because we're all staying well away from each other. Uh, So go there and do that. Like like, like you have a choice. Like you don't. It's preordained. Oh, and do follow me on Twitter at Colm O'Regan or the podcast itself is Function Room Pod. Bye-bye.
snowman will 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 melt eventually. Snowman melts eventually. That's right. Yeah. Is that your way of saying that everything dies? Yeah. So, you know that some magic don't last forever. Some magic doesn't last forever, that's right. Mm.